Let's get going into the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew. I'm going to be in Matthew 5 tonight. We move backwards. We have not been moving left to right through this, um, so I know it's not a shock if we move backwards. You know that we never covered all of the Beatitudes, so we're going to jump back into one of those Beatitudes tonight, namely, blessed are the pure in heart. And I, I literally am doing these as they sort of stand up in my spirit, um, whatever, as I work through the Sermon on the Mount, whatever flag flies the highest that week in my soul is the one that I kind of lean and gravitate and pray towards. And, and that's what happened with this one. I will also say in full disclosure that I sort of skipped Blessed Are the Pure in Heart on my first run through because it didn't stand up. It didn't really outweigh the other ones, but also because I didn't have a real good answer of what I would want to say in regards to this beatitude. And I know that seems odd because it's really simple. It's kind of a straightforward Beatitudes, like why, what's so tough about it? It's not that it's tough. It's that I, like anyone else, I guess, or maybe weaker than anyone else, tend to sort of once in a while fall into the what do I need to do category when I read some of these Beatitudes. What do I need to do to make this happen? And I want to see God. And I know you want to see God. And if, if uh, the pure in heart get to see God and I feel like I'm not seeing God, then what's my natural response going to be? Well, there must be something wrong with my heart. There must be something wrong with my spirit, man. And the, the Beatitudes are not given to show you that you have a heart problem. They're given to show you the kingdom's solution to what's going on on the earth. It's God and how he deals with us. He wants us to deal with one another in that way. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is challenging. It's why we're confronted with judgments and love and treatment of our enemies because those things aren't easy. But it's not, and I've said this to you before, but of course it bears repeating, it's not meant to condemn us and say to us, you have to jump this high if you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom. And if you can't jump that high, well, then you're going to go to hell. That's not... That's how we end up with some of this stuff sometimes. It's how we treat some of these statements of Jesus. And I don't like that. I don't agree with that. And so as I looked at something like the pure in heart, which, um, let's put that up, Matthew 5, 8. I know you know it, but I want you to see it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Chapter, verse, very simple, very short. Um, looks really easy, and I, and I look at that and, and say, it's pretty straightforward. What more do we need to do with it? And, and so as it sort of got higher in my spirit this week and higher and higher. That's the one we're supposed to focus on. Um, I had to really get on the mat and, and go to wrestle with, with um, how do we, what do we take from this when Jesus says this? Um, because each of the Beatitudes, blessed, is really better translated blissful. It's, it's sort of an off-the-chart happiness. Um, but you don't look at the Beatitudes and go, here's what I've got to go do to get. Like, for instance, blessed are the poor and spirit, um, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so you go, okay, I need to go get poor in spirit. They're statements of fact. The kingdom of heaven is populated by those. And then, and then each one of them, it's a statement of fact of what it is. It doesn't, Jesus doesn't say jump up this high and you get to go into the kingdom. And so I don't want to look at pure in heart and then do a bunch of inventory on me because what happens is we devolve into works. We get sermons on holiness. We get sermons on purity. We get sermons on morality. Nothing wrong with sermons on morality or purity or holiness. But what happens when they aren't focused on the purity and the morality and the holiness that we have in Christ is they get jammed with a bunch of effort. What are you going to do to be pure, to be holy, to be moral? And while that might be really rah-rah encouraging one Sunday or two Sundays or three Sundays, keep getting swamped with what you need to do in order to be holy or moral or favored, and you will die. I don't mean physically die, though maybe. You will spiritually be crushed. There's no oxygen in an environment of have you done enough to please God because there's not enough oxygen in that room. And the reason there's not enough oxygen and I'm using a literal biblical statement there, as Paul said that the law choked up our faith. So we're literally being shrouded over with demand until our faith chokes. We get, this is why you see mad Christians who are angry at God and angry at the church and angry at their whole salvation experience. And 
I think it's because they got so choked out by the do good and then you'll be blessed message um, that we often call law or works. I don't like to call it works, honestly, because if we keep calling it works, then people are going to think there's no such thing as good works. There are good works. In fact, you're saved for good works, but there's no works to be saved business. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. You guys get that. That isn't some shocker to you, but it still needs reiterated occasionally. So let's look at it through that lens. And here's what I want you to watch out for. Just watch out for this. And I just as my plain speak here, nothing fancy. Watch out for, I want to see God, therefore I need to purify my heart. How do I do that? Because that's easy to land on. You know, blessed are the pure in heart. They get to see God. I want to see God. Oh, well, if you got to be pure in heart to see God, what do I need to do to be purer? See where this can very easily go. I want greater revelations of God. I want to see God in my kids. I want to see God in my money. I want to see God in my marriage. We start implanting God into situations to go, well, I'm not seeing enough of him. Maybe I'm the problem. See how that can get overwhelming quickly? And so if I'm the problem, then what do I need to do to fix it? So I just get rid of that. Instead, try something more like to see God is to be pure in heart. Not am I pure, but do I see God? Well, that to me seems like a much better way to approach this beatitude. I mean, to see God means I'm pure in heart. Am I seeing God? Not go to work on my purity, and I'll show you why in a moment but rather go to work to really identify what he looks like. So I think we would be better served in the church to teach people what God looks like than to teach people purity of heart to see God. Because if you could see what God looks like, you would realize that in seeing God, you are pure at heart. There's a reason why this beatitude exists the way that it does. Let's start with definitions and terminology. Then we're going to do two things tonight. We're going to look at purity through the lens of the Old Testament paradigm. Then we're going to flip it and we're going to look at purity through the lens of a New Testament paradigm. That's the two pillars tonight on which we're really going to hang this principle. And then we're going to seem like we take a hard left turn and we're going to tell a Bible story to close. And that Bible story, maybe it's popular to you, maybe not, probably is, depends on how long you've been in church or how long it's been since you read the Old Testament. Um, that Bible story, to me, illustrates tonight. And that's how we're going to try to land. We'll try to end up right back at Jesus. So let's start with a definition. Not every definition, but the one we really need is the Greek word pure, katharos in the Greek a word that means free from impure mixture and without blemish and spotless. It's a word that does not always land on the English word pure. We're going to find that tonight. But it, but it does have to do with purity in the sense that it is non-diluted. So this is a singular, and this is something you might want to remember too, is that uh, it has, there's no duplicity in katharos, okay? So there's not two sides to it. It's not a two-sided coin. It's a singular. There's something we'll get into a little later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 where Jesus says, um, the eye, well, um, the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is good, your whole body's full of light. The old King James says that, that if your eye is single, your body is good. You go, if your eye is single, sounds like if your eye's a bachelor and not married. But you can tell when you break the context down there, can't have anything to do with marriage, your single eye then would be that which isn't looking two directions. And so singular. And, and so we'll deal with that. I don't want to get sidetracked on that, but I, that, that illustrates that word pretty well. That pure has less to do with multiple things. So it's, it's this simplicity. You can't be focused over there and focused over there and be pure. So that, notice, without blemish, but there's no mention of sin. It doesn't say sinless in this text, though that's sort of the thing we always throw in. Um, but rather it's a state, it's a place that you are. All right, I want to look at the heart from the lens of purity, through the lens of purity in the Old Testament, Okay. And then we want to work our way up, watch what covenant does to it, and then work our way into the New Testament. 
Let me give you a couple very popular ones from the Old Testament. Watch the progression of ideas beginning in Jeremiah. And you go to the early part of Jeremiah 17.9. This one's famous. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And this, is sort of, this has sort of become a principle of the human condition. So we look at people in the world and we go, people's hearts are desperately wicked. Well, we're not wrong. The scripture speaks for itself that the heart is desperately wicked. The answer, who can know it, is, an, is a question of desperation. A question of how, what's going on in here and what's going on in here. Oh, by the way, both Old and New Testament conflate this, the head and the heart. Okay, in, in the same passage in the Bible, you'll have the heart thinks, and yet we know the heart doesn't think anything. The brain thinks, but we don't talk about the brain in the Bible. We talk about the head or we talk about our thoughts, but you'll also have them conflate and you'll have the biblical writers say that the heart thinks. Okay, we don't need to really get in the weeds with that. Just realize that this idea that the head is one thing and the heart is another thing, that thing's like 400 years old in human thinking. And it doesn't mean that our head and our heart are only 400 years apart, that they used to be together. But our thinking was always that stuff came from down here, that this was like the seat of, of who we are. And that if you felt something and thought something, then it was all in the same spot. Um, I know that's hard for us to imagine because we sort of, you know, we have the, the science of the brain and we know what's going on up here, but for generations, no, not at all. It was more of what's happening in the heart, in the place that you can feel. The heart is desperately wicked. Sounds like everybody's wicked. But I think we all know better. It's not as if every single thing people do is wicked. Like Solzhenitsyn said, the line, there's a line that runs down the heart of every man. It's the line that separates good and evil. And I really believe that. I, I, I believe that people have the ability to do good, and I believe that people have the ability to do evil. And I don't think that because you're a believer, you lost the ability to do evil. Um, if you do, good luck, because you've met some people who are believers who still do evil. So the potential is most definitely there. But an Old Testament concept that the heart is deceitful above everything, desperately wicked, who can know it? It's sort of like it's out of hand. And then the Old Testament graduates to 31 in a prophetic passage that gets picked up in the book of Hebrews. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. Notice that separation between the mind and the heart. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write my law on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In the same book that said the heart is desperately wicked, God says there's coming a day when I'm actually going to write what I want you to know on your heart. So that desperately wicked heart of yours is going to be overtaken by the new covenant. By the way, you and I are in this prophesied covenant. That's the book of Hebrews chapter 8. We are in the time when God has written his law onto our hearts. And what that essentially means, there's a lot of things it means, but what it essentially means is that it's no longer outside of me. It's inside of me. And so you can say people have wicked hearts, fine. But you can't say people have only wicked hearts. That's the difference. So do people have wicked? Of course, look around, people are wicked. Is that all? No, God says something more. So he's doing a work called the new covenant on the heart of man. Here's another one from Proverbs 23, seven. And this becomes, and when you see proverb, you know, well, didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this was probably a proverb, like something people lived by, like they would quote them and make them a part of their life. As he thinks in his heart, so is he. There's my example of thinks in his heart. No one thinks in their heart. We think in our head, but you see what I mean. As he thinks in his heart, so is he eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. I'm not worried too much about the last two lines. I just want to show you that top one because watch what Jesus does with this. As he thinks in his heart, so is he. Matthew 12, Jesus calls the Pharisees, brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is Jesus taking that old proverb and sort of 2.0-ing it and saying, what comes out of a man, in, out of his mouth, 
is a representation of what he is. By the way, this is what I think this sounds like. This is what it sounds like when it hits my ear, and you, you do with it as you will. But um, I think it means watch out what you think about, dwell on, and talk about in private will be what comes out when it matters. Okay? So if you are fearful and afraid, it'll probably be what comes out of your mouth when it matters. If you are courageous, it'll be what comes out of your mouth when it matters. Um, it's also why I'm pretty cognizant of how I talk out of the pulpit. I had somebody ask me this last week. They, they knew a pastor who's pretty blue with his language on social media. Let's put it that way. And uh, they were like, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, you know, I'm not going to judge people, whatever. You, you do your thing. It's your life and ministry and your reputation. But I said, for me, I feel like I really try to pay attention to how I talk away from the pulpit because I talk for a living. And so it's going to come out up here. You know what I mean? Like, because I like, when I'm at my best, I'm, I'm really comfortable. Now, when you're, not, when you're in a place where you're not comfortable, you're really aware, you're hyper aware, you guard every word. You might even write your whole sermon down because you're like, I don't want to screw this up. When you're, when you're relaxed, which is really when you do your best preaching and teaching, then you stop thinking as much about where you're going next and you start letting it kind of flow. Some of our best moments in here and in anywhere where you're hearing the word is when you get into that groove where you're not worried so much about where you're going and you're just letting it fly. You're letting all the stuff you've wrestled with come out and you let all the stuff you've worked with come out. Well, if you don't watch your tongue away from that pulpit, guess what's going to come out when you get really comfy? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's care because your heart, when it gets into that relaxed place, what's in it will come flying out. And so take that for what it's worth. And keep that in mind. And so that's a, part of the, that's a part of the human heart that Jesus talks about. Here's another one from Jesus in Matthew 15. And yes, Matthew 12, same book as the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, Matthew 15, same book as the Sermon on the Mount. Not, not the sermon, but the same idea. 15, 18. Those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. That's what defiles a man. This argument was in response to the Pharisees who argued that you had to wash or that you would take in demonic powers. You would take the evil into your body if you didn't ceremoniously wash. And Jesus goes, it's not what you bring in that's doing you wrong. It's the stuff that's coming out of you. And he goes, what's coming out of your mouth is coming out of your heart. That's the stuff that defiles the man. And look at the stuff that comes out. And of course, it's an evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness. None, none of it's good. Okay, and all of it's going to do damage to you and it's going to do damage to the people around you. And Jesus says, that's what defiles. Notice that Jesus doesn't say your heart defiles you. He said what comes out of it defiles you. So once again, this is why we have to be careful with how we communicate because how we communicate ends up playing into who we are. All right, and so Jesus then categorizes all of this stuff, not as the stuff that from the outside in makes you unclean, but the stuff that as it comes out makes you unclean. Here's another a couple, and, and then we're going to start working on this division idea. Psalm 86, 11, watch this phrase. Teach me your way, O Lord, I will walk in your truth. And then this interesting line, unite my heart to fear your name. And there's a real reference there to bringing two things together. Bring multiple streams into one river, which is an odd statement. It, it says to me that the psalmist, whatever he was going through in his life at this point, he realized that his heart isn't always unified, that sometimes he feels one way and sometimes he feels another way. And remember, I told you that they conflated the head and the heart. So it's very possible the author of this psalm goes, I just can't get my mind focused. You know, like I drift all the time. I mean, you know, one day I'm over here and another day I'm over here and I can't get my heart. They would have called it their heart. I can't get my heart. We know it's the head sometimes. I can't get it where I want it. So here's my prayer, God. Unite it. Bring all of this stuff together until I'm this singular, this one individual thing. And remember what I told you about pure. 
what Jesus said about pure, that it has a connotation of singularity, not duality. So it's all of this stuff sort of brought together. Or, I love Hosea. Hosea, Brian's got me a challenge, and I'm praying about it, to go from the Sermon on the Mount to Hosea. We've not done an Old Testament book on a Tuesday night, not all the way through. But if we were going to, Hosea is one that would be worth the run. This, this is, uh, well, we've been in it off and on at different times, but this is that adulterous wife book that God tells Hosea to go and marry a, basically go marry a prostitute. You're gonna, your marriage is going to be an illustrated sermon. This is how my people treat me, and I'm going to teach you how to, how to treat her. And you dig into Hosea, you see a lot about yourself. But watch this duplicitous heart. And Hosea 10.1, Israel empties his vine, brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Verse 2, their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. What's the biggest problem? There's all kinds of peripheral stuff going on. A lot of it's financial, a lot of it's property, personal. The biggest part is their heart is divided. And, and if you're talking about a book of a, <laughs> that really is prompting its prophet to marry a, a woman who cheats on him repeatedly and then he takes her back, this, the message of a divided heart would have spoke loud to Hosea. And so this is the Israel that Jesus comes to, a people of a divided heart. Now, all that's Old Testament. I know I put a couple Matthews in there to try to filter, bring to the surface some of the things that the Old Testament was saying and see it through Jesus' eyes. But no matter how you shake it in the Old Testament, we got divided heart. We need the Lord to bring our, put our heart into one singular stream. The heart's desperately wicked. We're looking forward to the day of a new covenant. No matter what I do, I can't seem to clean this thing up. So we need new covenant redemption. And here's two of them and two of my favorites. Ephesians 5, 25, the famous husbands and wife passage. And I just want to slow down now and ease into this New Testament side because this is where this sermon really gets its, really, really gets its underpinnings. Husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This is sacrifice, by the way. I mean, marriage is nothing if not a perpetual ongoing sacrifice. And wherever it is not a perpetual and ongoing sacrifice, you who refuse, us, we, who refuse to participate in the sacrificial side of marriage will approach marriage through the lens of selfishness. It will always be what I want, what I'm looking for, what I hope I can get out of it. Whenever you think about marriage, think about it through the lens of Christ and his church, and Christ never looks at his church and goes, boy, what can I get out of the church? One of the things we've done to depress the church, and I mean depress their excitement, their creativity, their vision, their love, is that we have brought them in and we preach to them that God has a bunch of things he wants from them. God wants your time this week. God wants your money today. God wants you to give up stuff for him. God need... And if that's the case, that's the husband that keeps telling his wife, she's got to do, you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this or I'm going to leave you. Well, that's a piece of trash husband. That's selfishness at the apex. And so if you want to see a marriage that reflects that of Christ, then stop believing that God keeps showing up at church every Sunday going, what do you got? What are you going to do for me? What did you do this week? That'd be, that's not a marriage. That's a one-sided event, and it's not a relationship. So stop believing that God's asking of his church over and over and over and over and over. What do you, more money, more stuff, more time, more. No, relax in his love. That's a good place to start. And why? Why does he treat us this way? Because he wants to sanctify and cleanse us with the washing water by the word. We're not perfect. We are not what we need to be. I refuse the message that says, because of the finished work of Jesus, you are all you need to be. Wrong. Because of the finished work of Jesus, there's nothing that you can do to finish his work, but you truly believe you are all you need to be? You, 
you're lying to yourself if you believe you're all you need to be. It's not showing up in the way you treat your neighbor. Oh, and if you think it is, go find someone you don't think's your neighbor. Then you'll find out you're not all you need to be yet. It, it's not as hard as we've made it. And, and I, what I mean by that is it's, it's not as difficult to determine whether we are all we need to be or not. Stop trying to spiritualize it all the time and just take a look around and realize that what he's doing is sanctifying and cleansing us with the washing of water by the word. That's what he's doing. Why does he keep doing that if we're perfect? He doesn't. Neither is your marriage. Not your relationship's not perfect, but you keep washing them off with your words. Or you keep beating them to death and putting them in prison with your words. You can, you can mess things up by the way you speak to the one you love or claim to love. Or you can purify that relationship by speaking over them, the one that you love. So this is the process that he can sanctify and cleanse us with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy. And look at this phrase, without blemish. I don't know if you caught it, but that was two of the English words. That's part of the Greek definition for katharos, pure. So what's, what's the end game for Christ? The end game for Christ is that he keeps loving on you and speaking good over you so that you'll be everything he wants you to be and that you're destined to be. And he's not demanding it of you or beating you, but instead he's speaking over you his goodness so that you become what he would have you to be. Are you all the way there yet? No, or these verses don't matter. You don't need this if you're already there. It would just say, it's all done. You know, Jesus just sitting around in heaven waiting on you to get home. But you know better. He constantly is washing us off. So whose job is it to purify the church? That's why I love this passage. It's Christ's job to purify the church. So Christ is the one making you pure. And how does he do it? John 13. We did John and we did it for years, but that doesn't mean we don't dip back into these specific moments and let them qualify other moments. Watch this. This is, remember, this is the night he goes to the cross. And knowing, this is, I didn't put this on the screen, but this is, this is preceding it. And Jesus, knowing that all things have been delivered into his hands, and knowing he was going to his Father, and knowing that he belonged to his Father, he rose up, he took off his outer garment, he wrapped himself in a servant's apron, and he knelt down in front of his disciples to wash their feet. What an amazing piece of humility. He knew he had it all, but what does he do with it? He decides to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And I always think this is so typical because look at how fast we go from, oh, you're not going to do this, to, oh, if you're going to do this, then I want it all. And... We sort of vacillate between radical emotions in our theology. So Jesus, to calm him down, says, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. Here's our Greek word, by the way. Blessed are the pure in heart. So what Jesus says in John 13 is, If I've washed you, you're already pure. You don't go make yourself more pure. You're already pure. But I ask you this. If you're already pure, why do you need your feet washed? That's Peter's question. He goes, hey man, wash the whole body. Jesus goes, you don't need the whole body washed. If you've been made clean, slash, if you've been made pure, you have no reason to get back into the bath. You just need to wash your feet. You've been walking through this world, and, and of course we've talked about this, but it's a, a culture of animal Animal droppings on the street and dust and dirt and grime and open-toed sandals and no shoes at all. And you walk into someone's home and they stink and they're filthy and they would send a servant to wash your feet so that they weren't filthy and stink the whole night. And we see that played out in the life of Jesus. And Jesus is down on his feet, down on his knees, washing his disciples' feet. Peter wants nothing to do with that. Jesus goes, this is the way this works in the kingdom. We wash feet. And... Peter says, no, wash my whole body. This statement, 
You don't need to be rewashed. You just need your feet washed. Tells me this. You don't need to get resaved. You're already pure. It's his job. He made you pure. But what you do need is the washing of the water of the word from Ephesians 5. You need the word spoken over you. You need reminded you're one of the sons of God. You need reminded you're forgiven. You need reminded you're not guilty. You need reminded there's no condemnation. If you don't get reminded of it, you forget it. And then you'll think you need to get resaved. That's Peter. Peter goes, you've got to wash the whole thing. He just goes, you don't understand how purity works. So you're already pure. Christ has made you pure. Here's the great paradox, guys, in, in one basic sentence. You're already pure, and yet you need to be washed off daily so that you'll be pure. How's that possible? That's Jesus. That's what he does. He's made you pure. You're his bride. But he doesn't neglect you. He didn't just say, I do. And then get a joint checking account. And then, you know, two ships passing in the night. Instead, he said, I do. And then he keeps washing us off with the same words he used in the marriage vow in which he continues to purify and continues to do the work. I, I'm kind of ashamed that I spent so many years of my life in the church not really understanding the purity process of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I knew that when you gave your heart to Christ, you were made into a new creation, but I honestly thought that purity was something that you went out and did through your works or through your action. I never realized that purity was something that Jesus provides you as you are washed off with his words. I thought purity was stop doing stuff. But purity is start receiving the washing of who he is. Also, by the way, there's no, no applause in the world of grace and favor um, for John 13. Like nobody ever brags about we're part of the kingdom. We get to wash feet. You know what I mean? And I'm not talking about a literal foot washing service. Um, I'm talking about nobody brags about favor showing up in their life because they had the opportunity to serve this week. Instead, we brag about favor when we get a raise. Like when things go well, kids pass their tests, get a college scholarship, car started and it hadn't been, boss gave us a raise, we bought a second house, we go, favor. God's really favored me. Nobody says, I had the opportunity to serve this week. God must really have put favor on me. And yet, I was doing a podcast today from Genesis 39 where Joseph's just been sold into slavery. This hasn't aired yet, it'll air next week. And the Bible says that he goes into Potiphar's house and it says, the Lord had favor on Joseph. And Potiphar could tell that there was favor on Joseph. And then, almost in an obscure moment in the verse, I think it's like verse 4, it goes, and the Lord had favor on Joseph, and he served Potiphar. And it just struck me as I was doing that podcast, I really heard the sound of the Holy Spirit saying, favor is not best identified when things are going well. Favor is best identified when you get down on your knees and wash people's feet. But nobody calls that favor, but the Bible does. And I think it's, be, I, I, well, I know why we don't want to do it. I mean, who wants to do that? Peter was embarrassed when Jesus did it. I mean, he thought, this is embarrassing. Get up, you don't wash feet. You're, I mean, it, I'm willing to die on the hill that you're the one. And now here you are down on your knees doing the low job. And Jesus has just figured out who he is in John 13. I know who I am, know where I'm going, going back to the Father. I belong to him. Time to start washing feet. I think that you've never seen God like you see God in John 13. Really. That, that's seeing God in a way that God as a servant God serving us. Remember when Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
In other words, I'm not here so that you will worship me or serve me. I am here to serve you. And when we are mirroring the love of Christ, we don't go out into the world to see what we can get. We go out into the world to see where we can serve. And it's hard because the world is built on what you can get. And it's just laying there for us. It's an opportunity to go out and get as much as you can and win and be the victor. And to the victor goes the spoils. And how do you know it's just not favor, pastor? Maybe I'm just favored is why all this falls my way. Maybe you are favored and it falls your way, but that's not the definition of what happens when we finally realize that we are the pure in heart, when we finally realize that we are favored. But instead we serve. Out of that comes service. So what's it mean to see God? John said this in his first chapter. Pretty straightforward comment that has one of the most powerful second sentences in it in maybe the whole Bible. Here's the powerful, simple, biblically sound, Old Testament-backed comment. No one has seen God at any time. You would not have got anyone in the first century, second century church or Judaism to have argued with that sentence. No one has seen God at any time. They got all kinds of good biblical stories about it. But look at that next sentence. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The word declared is the Greek word exegete. That's where we get the English word exegesis. Exegesis is what you do to Scripture. You bring out what they say. You put them on display for people. That's what we're doing when we preach. We exegete the text. Jesus exegeted the Father. In other words, Jesus brought the Father to the front and said, here's what he looks like. So look at the contrast. No one has seen God, but Jesus showed us what the Father looks like. So no one knows what God looks like. That's a classic standard line. But when you watch Jesus, you get to see what the Father looked like. And so therefore, is it true to say that no one gets to see God? This is John's counter. See, everyone's always said no one can see God. And John goes, but you can if you see Jesus. This is his counter to that great argument. So I ask you this simple question. What does it mean to see God? When you see God, it's not, the question is not what are you looking at? The question is who are you looking at? So according to John 1.18, when you see God, who are you looking at? Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. So when you find Jesus in a moment, it's the pure heart identifying with the pure heart. It's not go get pure to see, it's you see because you're pure. Let me show you what I mean. All right, we're gonna land on an Old Testament story. I am gonna read the text to you, but I wanna give you the background. Jacob is my Old Testament story. When we did the, we've been doing the podcasts on Genesis now for months, and I spent a lot of time, probably way too much on Jacob. Um, I couldn't get away from him. He's got such a fascinating tale that, that uh, you can just keep finding stuff. There's little nuggets of wisdom in all of his story. His name alone is interesting. Jacob means cheater or supplanter. Um, some old definitions would say heel catcher, which I always thought was kind of a funny definition. The guy that literally grabs your heel trips you by the back of your foot when he walks behind you. Um, that's Jacob. And um, he lives it. He's a cheater. He cheats his brother out of his birthright. Um, he cheats his father out of the firstborn blessing. He cheats his father-in-law out of maybe millions of dollars worth of goods and cattle. Um, He's a reciprocal guy, too. You see it happen to him frequently, too. He cheats, but he gets cheated. It's almost like Genesis doesn't want you to get too infatuated with the cheater lifestyle, lest you think it's the way to get ahead. So you kind of watch him kind of go in circles a lot, kind of, kind of dog chasing his tail a few times in the story. And the interesting thing about Jacob, whenever you say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's that big triumvirate, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob would have disagreed for most of his life, for most of his recorded life in the book of Genesis, if you had said to him, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he would have said, no, nah, he's the God of Abraham and Isaac, but I'm, the jury's still out. 
for me. Because for half of his story, he even has a, conf- uh, a confrontation with God in the middle of the desert where he, he has a dream that there's angels going up and down a ladder and he sees God at the top of it. He wakes up in the morning and he says, surely God was in this place and I did not know it. And he goes, okay, God, I'll tell you what, I'll cut you a deal. If you'll give me everything you promised to my grandfather, I'll make you my God too. And then the Bible follows his story. He hasn't made no commitment to God. He has no faith in God other than, you know, if you'll do it, I'll follow you. If you don't, I won't. Let's see how this works out. And then this is Jacob. This is his story. And it's sort of classic for a dude whose name means cheater. You know, it's almost like, you know, maybe I will, maybe I won't. I mean, do you trust me, God? I mean, my name is cheater. Let's see what happens. And so he cheats his brother Esau, rips him off, and they go their separate ways. And we, we have like a 20-year gap where Jacob goes down, you know, and marries Rachel and Leah and gets cheated by Laban and all that. And he's coming back. He's sort of meandering. He's had enough. He's had enough cheating and being cheated, and he's sort of bringing his family back through the wilderness. And he finds out that over the next hill is his brother Esau, whom he hasn't seen in over 20 years. And the last time he saw him, he ripped him off of the firstborn blessing and his mom pulled him off to the side and said, you got to get out of here because if your brother finds you, he's going to kill you. And so he's been running from Esau his entire life. And he concocts a plan by which he's going to split his family into multiple units and put a bunch of cattle and goods and gold and silver in bags and send part of the family out to meet Esau. And then he's going to put a second group and a third group and a fourth group. And he admits, I'm doing this in case he kills the first group. He won't kill all of us at the same time. And guess where Jacob, which group he's going in? Way at the back. Here's your hero character. You know, so everybody else is going to go in front of me. We'll see if Esau kills you. I still got time to run. And so that night he goes to sleep. And in his dream state... He gets visited. Let me read for you Genesis 32, 22. He arose that night, took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and he crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. So he's already begun the process of, hey, you guys go on ahead. I'll catch a good night's sleep. I'll see it first light. We'll see what happens. 24. Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. I use the the New King James, which capitalizes the M on man. It's probably not right. It was looking up Genesis. Um, It's probably not right to capitalize the M, only in that um, when the New King James capitalizes words that shouldn't be, it's trying to tell you that it's God. But the Hebrew is a bit ambiguous here at this point. This is... is, um, transposed. It really doesn't belong. At this point, Jacob doesn't realize he's wrestling anything other than a dude that showed up in his camp in the middle of the night. And this is what you do. You fight the guy that's here to kill you. Um, So the capital M kind of gives it away, but there's also ambiguity in the Hebrew that he's wrestling a man, that he figures out his God. But on the way to figuring out it's God, the ambiguity in the Hebrew literature is it's really Jacob. Okay. Because if you're wrestling a man, you're wrestling you. And so the start of the battle is you wrestling you. Because when you wrestle with God, by the way, there's a bunch of you involved. That's part of the process. You can't get around that. You'll never get around really wrestling with you. Okay, so he wrestles with a man till the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip And the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And so God isn't winning or the man isn't winning. The angel isn't winning the fight. 26. And he said, let me go because the day breaks. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So God said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And for years I preached this message to say, God asks you what your name is so that you'll admit it. And I don't think that's totally wrong, but there's a lot more going on than just admitting it. What we're about to see is a shift in identity. And so Jacob, who identifies as the cheater, my name is Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. Your name should be called Israel because you have struggled with God and with men, struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Who wins the wrestling match? Jacob. And 
His name is changed to Israel, which in the Hebrew, Israel, he who wrestles with God. So you go from being a cheater to he who wrestles with God. Jacob asked and said, tell me your name, I prayed. He said, why is it you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And I'm not going to get too deep into those because as I said before, I've spent too much time on that um, in podcasts. So I know my tendency. So he blessed him there. So part of the blessing is a name change. What's the other part of the blessing? 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel for I, look at this. I have seen God face to face. I brought this whole story to get you to that line because I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. And just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip and he limps the rest of his life. And so two major events occur at the wrestling match that are lasting events. Jacob goes from Jacob to Israel, name change, cheater to the man who wrestles with God. Names are identities in the Hebrew vernacular. And so Jacob has his identity changed in one night. I am no longer a cheater. I am a guy who contends with big things. What comes out of that? Dislocated hip. He limps on it because what happens is that your walk changes. Because if you ever really get a change of identity and see God face to face, you will not walk the same again. And I don't just mean, I don't mean physically. His was physical, but ours will be a spiritual walk that will not be the same again. Now, he saw God face to face. What's that mean? Does he know what God looks like? Or does seeing God face to face mean there's a change of identity? And then what does he do with it? Okay, he wakes up. Here's the first thing. I'm not gonna read every verse, but he wakes up and he changes his tact. And he goes, all right. We're going to go over me, Esau. I'm going out in front. Because when you go from Jacob to Israel, you pick up something. You lose something, but you pick up something. So Jacob gets out in front of his family, leads them over to meet Esau. And when he gets to Esau, Esau sees this big caravan of people coming at him. He goes, what in the world is this? Here's their conversation, Genesis 33. Esau, so what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in your sight my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself, which Jacob couldn't believe because he's been convinced for years that if he ever sees Esau, Esau's going to kill him. Now watch Jacob's response to this statement. Jacob said, no, please. If I've now found favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand. Inasmuch as I have seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. Now make the connection. Last night, he actually saw God's face. It changed his name and it changed his walk. And the next day he saw his brother. What was it about Esau's face that made Jacob think he had seen the face of God? Esau wasn't what he thought he would be. Esau showed him mercy. And the moment he saw mercy, he thought he was seeing God. So the face of God is not a literal face. It's not some cosmic face on the front of God. The face of God is that which looks like God as seen through other people. Jacob saw God when he looked at Esau. He goes, I've seen your face. It reminds me of what God looks like. What? Esau? Yes. Because the way you treated me is the way I see that God treats me. And then one more. Exodus 33, 18. Short one. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face because no man shall see me and live. This is one book after Jacob. Who's right? Jacob saw his face and he lived. And God tells Moses, you don't get to see my face and live. Who's correct? Here's my thoughts. When we see God, we die. We do not die physically, but some part of us changes. Some part of us dies. We have a new name. We have a new identity. We have a new walk. Our limp, our spiritual limp indicates we are not who we used to be. No more duplicity. No more deception. No more division. To see God is to come to the end of the enslavement to the divided heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God as I see God in you and I see God in you and namely I see God in Jesus 
It's the end of my slavery to the divided heart. I know in that moment what pure of heart looks like. And this is what Jesus said it looked like. I close. John 14. If you had known me, you would have known my father. And from now on, you'll know him and you have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the father. And that would be sufficient. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I speak to you, I don't speak of my authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else just believe me for the sake of the works themselves. What's God look like? Jesus. And anywhere you see Jesus loving out of someone else's face, you've seen the face of God. And that is purity of heart. Doesn't get any better than that. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Don't think that means get pure, get pure, get pure, get pure, someday get to see God. No, it's look for God. You find God, you'll find singleness. God's not duplicitous to the way he treats you. There's a singleness in God. Long road, short verse, long road to get you around to what's God look like. My, my favorite thing on that, my favorite landing spot on that, what God looks like is Jesus. It's what God's always looked like is what God always will look like. Find Jesus and you don't have to, it's not just about go to church to see Jesus. Listen to your favorite worship song to see Jesus. Hear your favorite sermon to see Jesus. No, you can find Jesus in Esau's face. That's the whole reason I told you that story. It's not about waiting until you see something super holy. It's about finding what God looks like in the way people are and the way people treat you and the way you treat them. That's the purity of heart. That's what we run towards because that's representative of what we really are. A glorious church without spot and wrinkle in whom is no blemish. You already are there. Find that in your neighbor. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the word. I, I just thank you for this wonderful journey you've taken me on. And, and sometimes there's just more than I know what to do with. So I hope we've filtered some things and you throw a lot of, we throw a lot of information out there and hope that your spirit is latching them onto one thought, two thoughts. But at the end, what we really want to leave with is just a better picture of you and then what we're to do with that in the world. And as we live that out and we walk that out and we share that with our neighbor, may it grow in ways that I can't teach it and in ways that none of us even know how to wrestle it. But if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we watch this purity of heart become our reality. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.